Welcome back to episode three of the Renaissance Times. <sighs> How are you? Yeah. Things are fucked up. Things are fucked up in Western... Western. Oh, I'm fine. Things are fucked up in Western Europe. Greed. Power. So as we Everybody wants mentioned at the end of the last episode, in case you can't remember what was going on... Connie, uh, big, big, big Connie dies. Little Connie is declared Augustus by a Gallic chief and the army. Galerius, who is the Augustus, one of the two Augustuses, says, what? Only I get to make Augustuses. You shut up. He makes him a Caesar (laughs) and makes a guy called Severus Augustus instead. Severus, uh, then Maxentius, Maximian's son, still left out of the cold. He didn't get a promotion when his father retired. He goes, fuck this shit, and he declares himself emperor. Uh, Galerius goes, "Uh uh-uh, no, you don't, and sends Severus against Maxentius. When Severus gets there, his army defects, Mm -hmm. and Maxentius has him imprisoned. Maximian then comes out of retirement, goes and does a deal with little Connie, says, listen, marry my daughter, do a deal to support my son, and I will say that you're an Augustus. Connie goes, oh, good, son. Marries the girl, (laughs) then goes... Hey, uh, little Maxie gives him a nod and a wink. He's all right, you know. And then he, and then Connie just goes to Britain and sends his armies across the Rhine. Says, "My name's Paul, and this is between y'all." Maximian goes to Rome to to sit down with his son. They have a falling out. Dad tries to usurp the son, fails, and goes to live with Connie. Right. Whew. Days of our lives here, yeah, man. That's right. Then, yeah, on eleventh of November, three oh eight. Galley calls a council to put this nonsense to bed. He only invites Maximian and Diocletian, the two retired guys. They've been retired for three years at this point. He calls them back. Diocletian obviously recovered from his illness, apparently. Mm -hmm. And uh, they get together and they sit down and work out what's going to go on. Now, the result of this is Maximian is forced to abdicate again, he tried to usurp the title. Right. And Constantine is again demoted Aww. to Caesar. No. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and one of, uh, of Gallerus's old military companions, Licinius, gets made Augustus of the Western region. So didn't see that one coming. But uh, um, Constantine, has been, he's, he's already gone from Caesar to Augustus. He's not going back down. There's only one way on the ladder, and that's to go up. He refuses to acknowledge his demotion. And he, when, as he puts out coins, he still puts that he is Augustus on his coins. He is not going to go back to being Caesar. He's come too far. He's worked hard to get the people to love him. He spent a lot of money on, on building projects and benevolence. And all the time that he was fighting the Germans and the Britons, the people uh, of the Western Europe loved that because he was fighting the barbarians. He was fighting the enemy of Rome, whereas Gallerus uh, is trying to, you know, have almost start a civil war, which nobody wants. So the people of Western Rome really seem to like Constantine, and he's going to try to use that to maintain his status of, as Augustus. Now, I should point out that uh, this guy that he's promoted to Augustus, Licinius, one mm-hmm. of his old military companions, is replacing Severus, who ha- has been captured by Maxentius. <laughs> right. So the, uh, <laughs> he's assumed, he's MIA, assumed he won't be coming back. <laughs> now, 
Connie's not having the demotion. He continues to call himself Augustus at this point. He's like, fuck this shit. I keep having to get new business cards made. It's cost me a fortune. <laughs> you're killing business me. cards, paintings. Yeah, my, my marketing just... team. You're killing my marketing team. <laughs> <laughs> Barry and Stan. Barry and Stan Marketing. You must have heard of them. They've been around forever. They're famous. Um, brilliant. Meanwhile, Maximinus Dyer, Galerius's nephew, who was one of the Caesars, he's a little bit pissy because now he's been passed over for promotion to Augustus. He's like, Licinius, what the fuck did he do to become Augustus? I'm supposed to be the next Augustus. He demands that Galerius promotes him to Augustus as well. And Galerius is like, oh my god! Like the fuck it! What? What? Oh, this is, I, 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 I never asked for this job. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, "Look, Maximinus and 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 Constantine, how about I call you both sons of the Augusti? I just they're like, what's that mean? He goes, I just made it up. It's kind of catchy. It means you're you're not quite a Caesar. You're not quite Augustus. You're the sons of Augusti. Mid level. They were like." He says, like, Jesus is the son of God. Not quite God, but uh, not quite human. He's the son of. They were like, fuck off. No. So by the spring of 310, Galerius refers to both of them as Augusti, which means there are now four Augusti. (laughs) Count them. One, two, three, four. Ah, 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 ah. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. It's over three. Anyway. <laughs> From now we need to start laughing like Tommy Wiseau. Hi, doggy. Ha, ha. Ha, ha. Um, <clears throat> then old Maximian. Yeah. Now he's getting bored in retirement. He goes, what? They're handing out Augustus titles. <laughs> I, I, I think I need that back. I'm bored. I've been retired for five years. You know, I, there's only so much fishing, painting, uh, right. tango lessons you can do, yeah. <laughs> traveling around in a caravan, right. seeing the sides. I've done it all. I'm done. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah, come on. I want some action. I, I need some action. So he he starts a rumor that Constantine is dead oh, and he is the new Augustus. <laughs> He's got a brilliant plan. He's got a cunning plan how to come back. Yeah, because because uh, um, Connie had given him some troops to watch, little Ma- so Big Max could watch Little Max in case he decided to attack in southern Gaul. He and uh, Big Max uses those, um, says Constantine's dead, and he's going to take over. But as you can imagine, because Constantine is smart, he's learned a lot from his father. He learned a lot from Diocletian. He worked really hard to earned the loyalty of the army. So even though he tries to spread this rumor, most of the army stays loyal to Constantine, which puts Big Max in an awkward situation, and he's got an Amscray post-haste. Yeah, Connie at the time was uh, up beyond the Rhine fighting Frank, and Frank said, listen, <laughs> can I be frank with you? He said, yeah, I can't guess. I reckon you got to go to take care of this shit. Look, I know we're in the middle of a battle and everything, but... Uh, you got to go. You need to... You need to you got to go nip this shit in the butt. Look, I know I shouldn't be telling you this, <laughs> but uh, hey, you know, got to live up to the night. you got to handle your bidna. you got to handle that bidna. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Michael says, if you can't control your wife, I have to. Um, <clears throat> so Connie returns, defeats Max, Big Max in battle, captures him, but 
because he's a nice yeah. guy, gives him clemency. But Aww. because he's not completely nice, he says, eh, I think you should commit suicide. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should commit suicide. You know, yeah, pretty much doing everything but the actual deed himself. Reminds me of that scene at the end of Godfather Part 2 when Tom Hagen goes to see Frankie Pentangeli in prison right. with cigars. <laughs> They're alone in the yard smoking stogies. And Tommy goes, you know, Frank, uh, there was a tradition in ancient Rome. <laughs> you know, you used to talk all the time about ancient Rome. You're a big Roman history fan, right, Frank? He goes, yeah, that's right. You used to talk about what, what happened to these guys when they were accused of treason. He goes, well, they would... Uh, get into a nice warm bath and cut their wrists open. He goes, good to see you, Frankie. And then they leave and then <laughs> Frank commits suicide. So this For, is what they're talking about, right? right. This is what it's uh, referring to. Right. Uh, <coughs> Maximian, Big Max, had been emperor for ton of years. Yeah. Uh, hangs himself. Yeah. Commits suicide. In July of 310, yeah, first he binge listened to our Life of Caesar podcast, then he killed himself. I'm sure there's no relation to now, and that was in July of 310. So theoretically, Connie has removed a problem for himself, but not really, because now the son is going to use that ever so brilliantly with his own marketing team and say, I vow to get revenge for my father's death, you bastard. Yeah, and so... He says he's going to revenge Big Max's death, but then Connie starts to go. He calls in Barry and Stan's agency, <laughs> and he says, look, um, got a problem here. We need to put some spin on this shit pronto. <laughs> and he comes up. they come up with this story where they he say that Big Max had actually tried to murder him in his sleep <gasps> after the clemency. But uh. Fausta had found out before it, it was going to go down. So Connie told one of his eunuchs <laughs> to sleep in his place. He called him and he goes, hey, um, Johnny, Johnny, come here a minute. Johnny, bring, Johnny Dickless. Bring your pajamas. Johnny Dickless, yeah. come here. <laughs> Johnny Dickless, come here. He goes, I've still got my dick. They just cut my nuts off. All right, all right. Let's Whatever. not get technical. I don't want to know the details. Johnny, Johnny No Nuts. Johnny No Nuts, come here. Well, don't show me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't need to see that. Right, now listen, Johnny, John, John, Johnno, Johnno. Listen, you've always said you thought my bed looked really comfy, yeah. right? You're like, oh, you should see the things we have to sleep on. <laughs> I know it's we live in a battle. Just because, just because I've got no nuts doesn't mean I don't like a comfy bed. Well, you know, it doesn't take away yeah. takes away a lot of things not having balls, but not. Yeah. Liking a comfy bed. He goes, well, listen, tell you what. Yeah. I'm feeling good, feeling happy. Uh, first day of spring and all that. <laughs> why don't you um, Why don't you try out the bed? Oh, sure. <laughs> it's no problem. It's no problem. It's my I pleasure. I'm that kind of a king. I'm that kind of a guy. I'm love. <laughs> I'm so nice. Listen, tell you what, I'll throw Fausta into Boom. the bargain. Look, I know you don't have any nuts, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, a little bit of finger banging, you know. I know that you guys yeah. like a little bit of that. You know, you, it's all good. It's all good, Johnny. Don't, uh, no, no, I don't thank want any payment. You. You're insulting yeah. me. Thank don't thank you. me. Yeah. Thank you. That's right. I want you to live this night like it was your last. 
And it was. So the eunuch was <laughs> murdered in his place, according to right. Barry and Stan's new <laughs> propaganda piece. So then the jig was up, and then Big Max committed wow. suicide. So Connie also institutes a damnatio memoriae. On oh, the memory, I think, I think we've actually got a Life of Caesar intro that Rob did where I struggled to pronounce that the yeah. first time. Damnatio memoriae on Max on Big Max. You want to explain to people what the old dammy memmy is? Yeah, basically, you're trying to make him um, disappear from the face of the earth because what he did was so heinous. They destroy all inscriptions about him, and including his image, literally the equivalent of trying to make it like he never existed. That's pretty mean, especially for somebody who was an Augustus. And when have we seen this before? Oh shit! Was it Mark, Mark, and Marcus Antonius? They got rid Marcus of this stuff. Marcus Antonius, yeah. Augustus, they couldn't even use Octavian. it. They couldn't even name somebody. Yeah. Whew. That's messed up. He must have been pissed. So. <clears throat> Now, this is all obviously part of a propaganda mm-hmm. campaign to ruin little Max's family's reputation. Um, it didn't need much help, apparently, because little Maxie was a bit of a cunt. Uh, from what we understand, he, he wasn't very popular, uh, <clears throat> according to at least you know the, the Christian sources, which are obviously biased. But it also had an impact on Connie's legitimacy because it was Maximian. Right who first made him Augustus. He was tied to Big Max. But he called in Barry and Stan. He said, look, Barry and Stan, by the way, <laughs> if you don't know, our, if yeah. you don't listen to shows, Barry and Stan run the oldest marketing agency in history. They've been around since the days of the ancient <laughs> Greeks. They're um, pretty much been like- They're all the way through to... Stalin yeah. in the Cold War. They're kind of like C-3PO and R2-D2 there in all of them. The longest running Cold marketing movies. agency, PR agency ever. <laughs> you might be asking... Yeah. You might be asking why you've never heard of this agency. Well, that's how good an agency right. they are because a really good agency doesn't want to be known that they exist. Right. It's like the greatest trick the devil ever pulled yeah. was convincing the world he did. The greatest trick... Barry and Stan ever pulled was convincing the world they didn't exist. Basically, that's the origin of that uh, that saying. So anyway, he called in Barry and Stan, and he said, "Look, uh, you know, now that Big Max is, you know, is Damnadio. In fact, I can't even say his name. Him, Big M, he who shall not be named, um, <clears throat> made me Augustus, and and we we can't we can't run that story anymore. We need a new story." They were like, "No problems. We're on it." So they went off and they cooked up this story that he was, <laughs> it, it, they found secret records. Uh, people said, how did you find them? They said, well, there's this guy, Nicholas Cage. We always hire him to go and find uh, stuff. He's really good at it. Um, they, mm-hmm. they found long lost, never before known uh, documentation to prove that uh, little Connie was actually distantly related to Claudius II, a.k.a. Claudius Gothicus. Wow. So, yeah, Claudius Gothicus was a soldier emperor of barbarian birth from the 3rd century. Um, The Goths had been uh, kicking Rome around a little bit before that. 
Claudius was one of these guys who put a stop to that gothic shit, which is why he became Claudius Gothicus. Uh, and uh, Connie was all like, oh, hold on a minute. I don't need to be a tetrarch. I'm the real deal, descended from an emperor. It's mine, all mine, bitches. <laughs> this is in 310, by the way. Now, there are some great stories about Claudius Gothicus that I was hoping you would tell because I was right. absolutely convinced that having had a year yeah. to prepare for the show, Ray, you would have you prepared for the show. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Now, uh, there's the story about uh, once when Claudius uh, knocked out a horse's teeth with one punch. <laughs> Don't know what the horse had done. To deserve that. He won't but, do it again. Uh, yeah. There's another story that before he was emperor in the 250s, he was a wrestler and he supposedly knocked out the teeth of his opponent when his opponent grabbed his cock and balls <laughs> during the wrestling match. <clears throat> <laughs> now, that's the kind of emperor I want. <laughs> you grab my cock, I'd knock your yeah. teeth out. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, now Connie claims a divine vision of Apollo and victory appeared to him. Uh, seeing as you apparently have this piece of information yeah. in your notes, yeah. uh, I should give you the chance to <laughs> contribute something. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so Apollo and victory the, in, the, in the divine vision, they are granting him the laurel wreaths of health and a long reign. And obviously you have to be an Augustus to have any kind of reign. So obviously it was meant for him to do this. And um, from 310 on, Mars, as far as he is concerned, was replaced by Sol Invictus, a god conventionally identified as P Apollo. So now he, so not only is he related to an emperor, he's the blood relative of an emperor, but he's also been told by um, Apollo and Victory that he will you know, have long, long health and have a long reign as Augustus. So he's got everything on his side. He doesn't need Galerius's, um support in order to be Augustus. Yeah. Now, this is important, folks, for what comes later. There, here we see in this period, <clears throat> Constantine declaring himself the... Uh, only authentic sole ruler. Fuck the Tetrarchy, he's saying. I am <laughs> the one who's supposed to be on top. And he has a vision of a god who tells him he will be the ruler of the whole world uh, and the saviour of the Roman people. So, you know, this is, a, is a, an interesting trend that we see happen again later on in Constantine's life in a much more famous... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, story. Uh, most people don't know that. Yeah, he, he, he pulled out this trick a couple of times. Uh, right. He was uh, happy to. Have, he, apparently, gods liked appearing to him in visions. Um, Connie. Anyway, yeah, as you said, uh, up until this time, the god on his coinage had been Mars, god of war. From three ten onwards, Mars is replaced by Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, usually identified with Apollo. The date of the 25th of December was the festival of Dies Natalis Solus Invicti, the, uh, the, the, the um, celebration of uh, the birth of the uh, sun god. Mm -hmm. 25th of December rings, rings a bell for some reason. Can't remember why. Um, and uh, in 321, 
Constantly, many years later, Constantine decreed that the uh, Dies Solus, the day of the sun in the uh, Greek, uh, sorry, Roman calendar, Sunday, would be the Roman day of rest. Mm. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest and let all workshops be closed. Now, Sol had been worshipped since the founding of Rome, and we see here that we see here that Connie is happy switching around his allegiance to the gods, depending on his agenda at the time. Now, in three ten, Galerius fell ill Aww. and died a year later in three eleven. Yeah, I like this. According to the Origo Constantini. He was attacked by a violent disease and wasted away so completely that he died with the inner parts of his body exposed and in a state of corruption. Damn. Jesus don't play. Jesus? <laughs> yeah, he was against the Christians. Yeah, payback? Jesus did it. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You might think that if Jesus was going to intervene, he might have done it like seven years earlier when they no. were persecuting Christians. What, what was he waiting no, for? No, mate. No, mate. He, he is, he's complicated. Jesus, if, if anything I've learned, is complicated. Well, and he's busy. Like, he's very busy, Jesus. He can't be everywhere. He's not a god. Oh, wait. Hold on. No, he is a god. Shit. Fuck. Okay. Now, uh, his last official proclamation importantly, was an edict ending the persecution of the Christians, signed Uh by Licinius and Constantine. Right. So it wasn't Constantine that ended the persecution of the Christians, as is most commonly understood. It was actually Mm. Galerius. Right. But now that he's out of the way, obviously there has to be some kind of reckoning. So little Max starts to fortify northern Italy because he knows what's coming. There's got to be a showdown of some type between himself and Connie. Yeah, like Alexander's successors, these guys are going to go to war and to figure out who is the strongest. Now, um, big, big, no, Little Max, Big Max is dead. Little Max, Mad Max, strengthened (laughs) his support in the Christian community by allowing it to elect a new bishop of Rome. Eusebius, yeah. not Eusebius of Caesarea. Um, you know, with all of the persecutions, there hadn't been one. Obviously, bishops had been uh, arrested, executed. But um, Maxentius is like, okay, I, I need the Christian support. They're 7 to 10% of the population, or they were before we started killing them, but there's still probably a lot there. <laughs> right. So he elects them, uh, allows them to elect a new bishop. Didn't last very long, though, but he was there. Then in the summer of 311, little Max mobilized against Constantine, while Licinius was occupied off in the east, he declared war on little Connie and, again, was sort of using his father's quote-unquote murder mm. as his pretext. Now, now Constantine, in early 312, crosses the Alps. He's got a pretty sizable army, not as big as um, 
is a little max, but pretty big. He's got a lot of experience. He comes down and town after town is taken pretty easy that he either takes it pretty easy or they surrender. And like Caesar before him, he shows mercy because the people of Northern Rome or Northern Italy are not his enemy. It's the guy in Rome. So he's taking all these places. He's consolidating his power. He's expanding his empire and he's getting ever, ever closer to Rome. And little Max pretty much knows that he's going to have to fight this out, but he's hoping he can um, outlast him in a siege. He cuts all the bridges around Rome. He's got a... Hey, yeah. hey, 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 yeah. Oh, fucking slow okay. down, son. All right. Now, I was just going to say, he's planning. Jesus. He is planning for a siege, and he's planning to outlast um, Connie, who's probably a better general than he is. Jesus Christ, man. You just, you, you're in a hurry or something. You got to go to the toilet? What's going on? <laughs> no, I'm recording on the toilet now. Thank you for ruining that. I feel like you'd hear some echo and <laughs> plopping noises. Um, <clears throat> now, before all of yep. this, Constantine forged an alliance with Licinius over the winter of 311-312, offered him his sister Constantia in marriage. Now, this forced Maximinus and Maxentius to forge an alliance. So we've got two-on-two action <laughs> going on here. Right. Now, it's important to understand that when Connie went into Italy, um, Maxentius didn't ride out to meet him. He just kept sending his troops out there. Now, Maxentius had, I think, like twice the number, is the number I keep reading, of troops mm-hmm. that Connie right. had. But but he wasn't very popular, little Max. So uh, people didn't really rise up. And as you said, it was easy for Connie to win battle after battle after battle fought his way right through northern Italy, and then he gets down to Rome. And then, as you said, uh, the bridges across the Tiber were cut. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, little Max was worried that eventually that he wouldn't survive a siege, so he ordered a temporary boat bridge be built across the Tiber, which would enable them to cross it to get out there for a field battle. And then it could be broken up again, the boats, if Constantine tried to cross. Right. Now. Yeah. I want to talk about Constantine's new vision. All right. He's already had one. This now, is 2.0. Mm. You know, it worked well the first time. <laughs> Let's have another one. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That was his model. As well as... If you de-back, you can come back. <laughs> now, little Max sent his troops over the boat bridge. Still, he has twice the size of the army of Constantine, and he, he lines them up uh, facing Constantine mm-hmm. with their backs to the river. Now, <clears throat> when Constantine's army arrives, they have unfamiliar symbols on their standards or their soldiers' sh- soldiers. <laughs> Shoulders, shields, soldiers, (laughs) shields. Hard to say that 10 times fast at this point of the time. Now, I'm going to go through some versions of the story here because there's a couple and they differ. Lactantius, reminder, he was a Christian. He was uh, close to Constantine because he was his son's tutor later on. He told of a dream that Constantine had 
the night before battle in which he was told to place a sign of Christ on the shields of his men. Now, what people normally talk about here is that he put the Cairo, the first two Mm -hmm. letters in Greek of the word Christ, not Christ's name, which was Yeshua, but of Christ. Christ means uh, Messiah or anointed. And uh, the first two letters in Greek are an X and a P. And the Cairo, as it's known, is uh, or, or the Labarum, is a, a, an X and a P. Now, he put this on his shields, according to Lactantius. Now, 25 years later, Eusebius describes another version. He says that while Constantine was marching at midday, quote, he saw with his own eyes in the heavens a trophy of the cross arising from the light of the sun, carrying the message in hoc signo vinces, or with this sign you shall win. Now, in Cebius' account, the following night, Constantine has a dream in which Christ appears himself with the Mm -hmm. same heavenly sign and told him to make a standard for his army to carry with that sign on it, the labarum. It's a standard with the sign on it. Now, Eusebius is a little bit vague about when and where these events took place, but it happens before the war with Maxentius. Now... Again, he describes the sign as the Cairo, the X and the P, representing the first two letters in Greek of Christ or Christos. Mm -hmm. And we have some um, archaeological evidence of this. In 315, there's a medallion issued showing Constantine wearing a helmet with the Cairo on it. There are coins issued at Siskia in 317, 318 with the same image. But there's a couple of things we need to understand. First, that image had never been used in association with Christianity before, as far as we know. Before that, Christians tended to use the fish symbol Mm -hmm. that you see on bumper stickers in America, mostly, right? And a bit here, too, uh, actually. Um, The cross wasn't really a big thing. Um, It was mostly, you know, the secret symbol was the fish. Right. If, 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 if you were going to represent Christianity on your standard, why would you use a symbol no one had ever fucking seen before? Doesn't make a lot of sense. You would use the fish or you would use the cross or you would just write Jesus right. on it for fuck's sake. Like, yeah. why? I got to counter that. I have to counter that. If you and I are about to go to battle and I've got a cool looking cross on my shield and you've only got a fish painted on your shield, I'm going to feel pretty good about my chances, and I'm not going to think you're very masculine. That's my my take on it. Right. Well, here, look, this whole story is very strange and very weird, it, 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 for a whole bunch of reasons. Right. That doesn't get questioned enough. Now, I've been obs- a little bit obsessed with the Cairo for quite a few years. Mm. Um I have read, I have tried to figure out what's going on here, and, and it's very hard to get to the, 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 the guts of it. So what I'm about to tell you is purely based on my own research. I have not found a single academic or scholar. In fact, in, in making my documentary, I've asked academics and scholars about this. All of them come up blank. Okay. And when I explain to them my thinking, a couple of them have said, you should write a book on that, man, because that's actually really interesting. Um, so here's the mm-hmm. thing. 
Christianity, as far as we know, had never used the Cairo before. Right. Now, you might say, well, why use the first two letters of his name? Yeah. Like, what's the first two? Why why not one letter? Why not three letters? Why the first two? Eh, no one knows. It's just like, yeah, first two. Ran out of room. You know? Oh, we fucking... We were going to write the whole thing, <laughs> but then we made the first letter so big, you know what it's like. There's not room at the end of the page, yeah. and they're like, oh, fuck it, we'll right. just do two. Now, this symbol actually predates Constantine by about 500 years. Mm-hmm. There is only one piece of archaeological evidence that I've seen for it before Constantine, and it's a couple of hundred years, 300 years before Christianity. The coins of Col- Ptolemy III. Right. There is a Cairo on an extant coin from the reign of Ptolemy III, somewhere between 246 to 221 BCE. This would have been minted. And it has the Cairo on it, exactly as you see on Constantine's coins 550-odd years later. Hmm. Now, it may have, no, no one seems to know why, it may have represented the Greek word kreston, which means useful or, or the word for good or virtuous. It also starts with an XP or... Gold starts with an XP in Greek. Hmm. Uh, or Kronos, the god of time, starts with an XP, CR. All these words in Greek started with a CHR in the way that we would write them, right? right? Back when we did our Alexander series, I mentioned that Demosthenes, the great Athenian orator <clears throat> who liked to party, um, he had the phrase good luck, according to one of the ancient sources, emblazoned in gold letters on his shield at the Battle of Chironia in 338 BCE. This also might have been XP or the side of the virtuous, right? You You would paint XP on maybe if you were saying we're the side of the virtuous. So maybe Constantine was just saying good luck or we are the virtuous or we are the good on his shields. Yeah. Or maybe he was planning to integrate the Christians into his empire and he thought this was good PR. But again, nobody knew before this that this had anything to do with Christianity. It had never been used before. So if you if that was your intention yeah. to align yourself with Christianity and, and they're like, oh, look, he's the Christian, you would have done something that people would fucking <laughs> recognise. There's no point inventing your own thing that no one knows what it means <laughs> yeah. until <clears throat> years and years later. Yeah, the, the timing is off. He's nine miles from the Tiber. He's going to paint an unknown symbol on it or a probably rarely known symbol on it. It just, it, it, how is that supposed to motivate his troops who probably don't even know what the hell they're doing? So, yeah, the whole thing is suspect. But it has become a part of myth and legend and history, I dare say. Now, outside of Eusebius's book, The Life of Constantine, there is virtually no evidence that Constantine knew much about Christ mm-hmm. or even the requirements for Christian living. His, at this point, his, his, his main concern may have been keeping the Christians happy and, and supporting his rule, particularly as he was trying to close down the Tetrarchy, right, and bring it all under himself. Right. Um, 
And there's certainly, I think, a lot of evidence to suggest that he thought, look, this whole persecution thing didn't work. Even Galerius, uh, you know, uh, uh, ended it just before he died. Let's just bring him in, you know, give him, you know, give him, give him uh, some 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 legality and get him on board. Particularly after a decade of persecution, they're probably going to look favorably upon anybody who does that. But getting getting back to Eusebius. The mm-hmm. Life of Constantine wasn't the first volume of contemporary history that he published. He had already written a history of the church back in 326, 10 or 15 years before he wrote his Life of Constantine. Um, what did he say in that book about Constantine's vision? Nothing. Mm. Not a word about a flaming cross or the coming of Christ, or the Labarum, or the uh, Cairo, uh, nothing. <clears throat> In the history, he says, uh, the emperor piously called to his aid the God of heaven and his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. It's all he has wow. to say. So There's a lot built up around that. So the argument from silence here is pretty damning. Um, And if the heavenly cross, as he later claimed, had been seen by the whole army, if the current version of the story had been in the the same in 326 as it was in 337, you know, you'd have to think that Eusebius would have mentioned an event that must have been the talk of the whole Roman world and all Christians must be talking about. It's not like manifest signs of heaven were so common (laughs) in the early part of the fourth century that you go, yeah, I don't even no. need to mention that. Everyone's seen flaming crosses in the yeah. sky or whatever, or flaming Cairo symbols. Happened last now, Tuesday. The version yeah. of Lactantius, which was written written only a couple of years after the Battle of Milvian Bridge, he says that just before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine was warned in a dream to have the divine sign of the cross inscribed on the shields of his soldiers before leading them to the attack. That's it, the divine sign of the cross, the Caleste Sinuni, just a cross, and which he did, he put a, a cross on his shields. That's it. Mm. That's the, the earliest version of the legend, just says he was had a dream where he was put, told to put the sign of the cross. Now, the sign of the cross... Uh, I mean, you can you can um, translate that in a number of different ways. What that could have possibly meant to Constantius, and I'll get into that in a minute. Um, but but getting back to Lactantius, um, in his version, the earliest version, it didn't happen at the opening of the campaign, as Eusebius suggested, but on the evening before the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Uh, in Lactantius, there's nothing about a cross flaming in the afternoon sky, nothing of the inscription conquered by this, nothing of the entire army witnessing it. Constantine simply has a dream and is warned to place a cross on his shields. Uh, it isn't said who gives him the warning. There's no hint that it's Christ, as mm. Eusebius claims later on. Um, there's no mention of the labarum, the uh, standard with the cross. Obviously, Lactantius wasn't aware of any triumphant answer to Constantine's prayers for a sign. According to him, it was just a dream that he would have victory if he dedicated his weapons, 
with this cross, maybe to the service of Christ in Lactantius' view, but it was just a dream, put the cross on your shield. Now, assuming for a moment that Constantine maybe did mean to fight in the name of Jesus, it might have been because he thought Maxentius had a monopoly on the favour of the old gods because he was Mm -hmm. based in Rome, So if the gods of Rome were going to interfere in mortal affairs, they would interfere on behalf of the guy who was Rome's champion uh, and that he had to find another god to align himself with, although he had just had a vision from Apollo like yesterday, so I would have thought that that was pretty good. But anyway, he... He, for, that may have been a, a, an explanation if he was really thinking this was Jesus. And even if he did, conversion to a, a Roman at this point in time, a Roman of the elite, wouldn't have necessarily meant a complete conversion like we think of it today, you, where you completely alter your outlook and you stop all these things right. and you do some other things. It would have been just, okay, well, we'll just add another god to the pantheon, right? We'll just worship another god, Mm. build another temple, recite another formula. If his ambition was to rule the entire empire, it means he was going to be the emperor of all of the religions, and he might as well acknowledge them, bring them all in, make them all feel special, say, yeah, look, I'm I'm, I'm the emperor of all the Mm. gods. We don't really know, and it looks like the legend kind of developed over time if we look at Lactantius's early version and then Eusebius's version. But there's another version that people quite often haven't heard about. There was a guy called Nazarius. He was um, a rhetorician, uh, and he delivered uh, a speech in 321 on the 15th anniversary of Constantine's mm-hmm rule, and he reviewed the whole campaign against Maxentius. Now, Nazarius was a pagan, even in 321. So what was the pagan version of this miracle vision? Did the pagans attribute divine assistance to Constantine in the campaign against Maxentius, Ray? Not that I, I don't know. It was a trick question. I knew you wouldn't know. The answer is yes, they did. Okay. Now, Nazarius tells us that all of Gaul was talking with awe and wonder of marvels which had taken place. How the soldiers of Constantine had seen in the sky celestial armies marching in battle array, and they had been dazzled by their flashing shields and glittering armor. Constantine's soldiers heard these armies in the sky shout, We seek Constantine! We are marching to the aid of Constantine! So, clearly the pagans, as well as the Christians, believe that divine assistance to Constantine had helped him defeat Maxentius. Ah. But, Nazarius had a different interpretation of where the divine assistance was coming from. According to him... It was coming from Constantius Chlorus, Big Connie, Big Daddy C, who had been deified, as happened with the dead emperors, who was leading the hosts of heaven. And it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, him that was coming. And, of course, Chlorus in Greek starts with an X. 
So the X that he was painting on his shields, according to this pagan version of the story, was for his father, Constantine Chlorus. Now, you might ask, well, did the pagans just steal the Christian version of the story and put a pagan spin on it? And I don't think so. I I think you have to remember that public opinion in the 4th century, as indeed for a thousand years or more later, was not only willing to believe in supernatural Mm -hmm. intervention, particularly at moments of great crisis, they actually insisted that there should be such intervention, that big events required the intervention of the gods, and they would look for it, and they would interpret anything they could see as divine intervention. We know that through the auspices and the haruspices and all this kind of stuff. They're always looking for evidence of divine intervention. Mm -hmm. And if they can't find it, they'll make it up. (laughs) Now, what if there had been some unusual manifestation in the sky that was the common basis for all of these stories? Now, uh, do you know what a parhelion is, Ray, or a sun dog? No, tell me. It's a natural phenomenon that is relatively common. Uh, it's when an atmospheric condition happens where there's an optical phenomenon around the sun. It's usually the shape of a cross with a, a bright spot to the left and or right of the sun and a halo around the sun. So basically it looks like there's a halo around the sun with a cross through the middle of it. Get out of here. Something to do with ice crystals. Right. Yeah, ice crystals in the air that create this effect. You can see photos of it. Go Google Parhelion, and you'll see plenty of photos of it online. It's fairly common. So one theory is that what they saw was a Parhelion, and it were a cross through the sun of Sol Invictus, with a halo, and it was interpreted in different ways by different people. Now, by the way, we have stories much later in history of people believing they saw signs in the sky. In November of 1848, Mm -hmm. there was an aurora borealis in the Northern Hemisphere. People in France thought that they saw in the sky the letters LN, the initials of Louis Napoleon, and thought that was a clear indication from heaven of how they should vote in the upcoming presidential election. (laughs) In Rome, where people had no interest in Louis Napoleon, they didn't see his initials. They saw the blood of the assassinated politician Pellegrino Rossi, who they thought had risen to heaven and was calling for vengeance. Mm -hmm. By the way, interesting side note, the name of Pellegrino Rossi's assassin was Constantini. Um, Now, if, if such interpretations of natural phenomena were possible in the middle of the 19th century, of course they were possible in the 4th. The, the world was, has always been and continues to be in many ways profoundly superstitious. Right. People believe in manifest signs uh, and will, will invent them uh, if they can, uh, the supernaturally minded. We see this all the time today. So I think there's enough evidence from pagan and Christian sources that he may have seen something um, and, uh, you know, a cross on the sun and it was interpreted 
possibly by him in different ways depending on who he was talking to. To the Christians, oh, it was a sign from your God. To the pagans, it was a sign from other, you know, my father or the other gods or whatever. But as the Christians took hold of Rome, it rapidly took on a Christian flavour, and that's the one that most people have heard of. Now, according to a recent book by Harold Drake, who is the Professor Emeritus of History at UC Santa Barbara, he says Constantine's goal was to create a neutral public space in which Christians and pagans could both function. And he was far more successful in creating a stable coalition of both Christians and non-Christians in support of this program of peaceful coexistence than has generally been recognized. Mm. So I think we have to remember that earlier he claimed to have a vision from Apollo, promising he'd rule for 30 years. I mean, it's hard to imagine that he, he just had a vision from one God and then you'd go, oh, no, now I've got another God. I, 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 you know, forget that first God. Now I've got another God. He wants all the gods, right. all the followers of all the gods on his side, and it's not a bad strategy. Now, something else I want to mention before we wrap this part up. Um, this is the first time, and it's pretty important, that Jesus is known to support a war. <laughs> I thought Jesus was all about peace and love. But according to guys like Eusebius and Lactantius, to a certain point, at at this early stage, Jesus is taking a side in a war and saying, if you you just fucking paint a cross on your shield, I will help you kill and murder people, thousands Thousands. and thousands and tens of thousands of men. Now, this is obviously... Uh, a very important juncture in the history of Christianity. This is the beginning of a long history of Christians using their religion for war and violence. Had not happened before because they weren't in a position to do it before. They were all like, no, kill me, no, kill me, torture me, kill me. It changes now to, fuck those guys, we're going to go get them. Now... Just to finish up with the battle, uh, you want to talk about the battle as it goes down? So I'll take a rest and suck a lozenge. There was something I wanted to mention. So uh, supposedly on October 27th is when Constantine looks into the sky and sees the uh, the symbol, the Cairo. Um, and uh, so that's on October 27th. Now, what had happened before this for, for the last couple hundred years, because ever since the uh, civil wars uh, with Caesar and Pompey, Whenever one Roman army was about to fight another Roman army, and pretty much everybody knew one side, a particular side was going to win and a particular side was going to lose, in in several instances in Roman history, the losing side before the battle would pretty much kill their leader and then surrender to the other side, saying, well, look, we're no longer a threat to you, and that way get their own life spared. And some people say that... um, that uh, Connie was uh, thinking th- along those terms that because he's he's outnumbered either two to one or four to one or somewhere in between. It depends on which sources you read. So some some are saying that he uh, was cognizant of that and he needed to find some way to uh, uh, lift his men's spirits. So anyway, they're about nine miles from the Tiber, and the next day, October twenty eighth, Little Max is nervous, and so he starts having the uh, sibylline books searched through. And so he's, he's, he has his men looking through the books, and they find a passage that has that date, 
October 28th. And in that, they, they read the line, the enemy of the Romans will die. So he's obviously considering himself the good guy. Little Connie's the bad guy. And here's this prophecy saying that the enemy of Rome, which he represents, is going to die. So he gets so excited. Instead of staying inside the uh, the city of Rome, he goes out with his men, crosses the uh, the temporary bridge that they had built, and waited for, uh, for uh, Connie's men to come. But from what I could gather, as far as the actual battle, I think uh, Connie's men were just better soldiers. Maybe they were more motivated. Who knows um, what? But basically, um, you have these two long lines facing each other. Um, and um, Constantine uh, sends his um, cavalry in to face the enemy cavalry. And his enemy, his uh, cavalry win. And then Constantine sends in his infantry against the enemy infantry. Now, even though the... Um, Little Max has got more of infantry. They don't have room to maneuver, to give a little bit, to work their way around because they got their backs to the river. So they pretty much just start getting pushed back closer and closer to the river. They start to panic. Uh, the Praetorian Guard supposedly did a decent job of standing up to Connie's men, but because they stood up, they're pretty much cut down almost to a man. Uh, Little Max eventually panics along with his men, orders a retreat, and it depends, this is the part where you're not really sure, it depends on which story you read, uh, he is pushed into the Tiber, he is crossing the bridge, and then he falls off the bridge, some say that he had purposefully weakened the bridge, knowing that if uh, uh, Connie and his troops started to cross, they would fall into the water, because it would collapse, and he was killed by his own trap for Connie, but however it happens, he goes down, he falls into the Tiber, and because of the armor, and whatever he has on in the sheer panic, and he's probably injured. He ends up drowning in the Tiber. Not that that's the end of him, because Connie's going to have his body found, because he needs a certain part of it to show everybody that little Max is truly no more of this world. How do you dig up a body? Like, there's got to be hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of drowned bodies in the Tiber. How do you... <laughs> I don't like, how do you, oh, I guess I just got them all out. It's not like you can know. show a picture of him. It's not like you can just, you know, you have a Polaroid and find this body. I mean, how in the hell... <laughs> I guess from what he was wearing. But yeah, they dig up his body because yeah. they're, they're in need of it. He would have had the robe and the ring. There and maybe go. a diadem. Who knows on him. But anyway, uh, yeah, he... Um, Gets gets Maxentius' body out somehow, cuts his head off. <clears throat> um, Constantine enters Rome on the 29th of October, 312. Uh, there's a you know huge, huge show of public support. Maxentius, as I said before, wasn't very well liked. He, uh, Maxentius's head is paraded through the streets on the tip of a spear, and it is later sent to Carthage, because there had been riots in Carthage uh, mm-hmm. of recent time because they weren't happy with Maxentius, apparently, and they were like, oh, he's dead. All right, that's good. Now, my question to you is, how long does it take to send a disembodied head to Carthage? And in 312 CE, how do you stop it from just rotting uh, on that journey? Like, do you do you just have to stop and... Pack it. Well, I guess it's coming up to winter. We're sort of October. Maybe you have to stop and pack it with ice every now and again to stop it completely. Right? Did did they? Maybe maybe they soaked it in brine. Yeah, pickle it. Uh, Pickle it, and in the sun. By the time it gets, yeah. 
<laughs> By the time it gets to Africa, you pretty much have to sign around, uh, put a sign around that says, trust me, this was little Max at one time in history. Yeah. Well, uh, of course, the Christians later announced that his victory, uh, Constantine's victory, was due to the support he received from the supreme deity. Actually, Constantine later said that himself, that he'd received support from the supreme deity, but he wasn't specific about which supreme <laughs> deity. The Christians you know, said it was the, the their guy. god. Right. But uh, he left it kind of vague. Anyone could have interpreted that any way they wanted, and... As we will see in future episodes, that was probably deliberate on his behalf. No need yeah. to piss everyone off. Last week, you know, the Christians had all been being persecuted. You can't go along now, even if he wanted to, and say, oh, I was the Christian God. That would have upset people. Right. It's like, oh, <laughs> some, some God. I don't know. I didn't get his name. Happened too quick. Didn't have time. Didn't get to see what he looked like. He had a glow uh, around his face. Yeah. It's just a flash. Um, <laughs> so that's where we're going to end Episode three, folks. But before we go, yeah. I want to read. Uh, thank you. I just want to give a thank you to the people that have signed up uh, as of December 22nd when we're recording this um, as members either converted over from the old Alexander series or signed up a new. I'm just going to read out uh, names willy-nilly here, no particular order or level. Just going to thank these people for their support at the beginning of our series. These people signed up before the first episode was even out. Nice. Uh, Daniel Jones, John Simmons, Matthew Sherman, Andrew McBath, Edward Minimum, Jordan Chenel Quene, Anthony Dar, Jesus Barano Pena, Robert Sullivan, g'day Bob. Wolf Lorian, g'day Wolf. Uh, Dane Forsyth, Sam Harris, not the Sam Harris, but the other Sam Harris. Phil Bradley, <laughs> Carl uh, Lilachvist, Thibaut Crochon, James Caffin, big Jimmy. Melissa, fucking stop whatever you're doing and finish my painting, Jimmy. It's been a year. It was a year ago I was in Melbourne, James, just in case you're wondering. It's been a year you've been working on my portrait. Not trying to, like, I'm not trying to put pressure on you. I know. I, I'm just saying it's been a year. You do you. Yeah. <laughs> Melissa, <laughs> Melissa uh, Weeb, Dario Ianero, Stuart Barraclough, Rod Todd Hunter. <laughs> hey, Rod. Always love I love Rod's name, Rod Todd. Uh, Rainiel Bankig, Yared Cluvier, <laughs> Jacopo Novelli, uh, Jeremy Kurthoys, nice. Sam Norderman, Dan Burkle, Jamie Bennett, Caleb Copeland Cook, Guy Munnings, Mag Cotty, James Barkley, Luke Foden. Hey Luke, how are you, buddy? Caught up with us in Sydney, Luke. Good guy. Bob Compare, Wes Bailey, Henning Retskin. Uh, Stephen Lynch, Gail Beck, Lucas Gendron, Andrew Geelan, Peter Consecaio, William Hunt, Richard Sumner. Hey, Richard. Uh, Jim Petronovich, one of the big uh, contributors to the uh, Jesus documentary. Richard, good guy. Jim Petronovich, Derek Latron, Sean Fisher, Jamie Kaplan, Simon Vesey, John Gelhausen, Kylie Simister, Gary Arndt, uh, greatest photographer in the world. Gary, check out Gary Arndt. Arndt. (laughs) If you haven't, uh, check out his photography. Uh, Put out a book. 
uh, recently of his photography. You've got to follow Gary on Instagram and Facebook and shit, man. Check out his photography. Yeah. Just travels the world taking photographs. Great guy. Matthew Clark, Paul Keyes, Michael Cowley, Rod Rosewell, Lisa Grice, Brad McLean, Tom Monk, Amber Hutchinson, Matthew Hoff, uh, Sebastian uh, Born Burr, uh, Born Sebastian, no, I think it's the other way around, Born Sebastian Burr, sorry, BS, uh, Bernard Muckenfusch, our old uh, German <laughs> listener, good to see you still around, Bernard, Lorna Crosby, Nicholas Rock, <laughs> God, we've got some history with some of these people now. They're family, they're family. Hope you're going to come and hang yeah. out with us when we go to Rome, Bernard, when we go to Europe, yeah. Clinton Dines, Brian Simmons, Justine Berg, Michael Webb, Kettel Hun, uh, Ellis Lewis, uh, RSMC, Thomas Mockett, nice. Tommy Mock. Going to see Tommy and Raleigh in a few weeks. Looking forward to that. Kia Kibal, Ruth Berger, Stephen Court, Alan McIntosh, Jesse Proctor, somebody called Leaky with no name, <coughs> Carl Armstrong, Chris Gluck, Local boy, hey, Chris, what happened to my fucking cheesecake, Chris? You made a cheesecake. I know your wife was in hospital, but come on. You're supposed to bring me the cheesecake. You fucking piked on the cheesecake, Chris. That's not right. That's not right. I was hanging out for that cheesecake. (laughs) Me, I think he did. Mary Baldwin, Colin Osmar, Kai McGreal, Alan Fremier, Tim Burlingham, Gilam Corley van der Schaal, Christos Kakras, Nicholas Ferrara, David Mills, Andrew Gates, Stephanie Ledison, James Hingley, Nathan Panetta, Vicky Ficklin, Michael Roman, Gary Caprone, Thomas Kelly, Sean Maguire, Anders Horgan, Jeffrey Strinkovsky, and I'm not done. Jesus Christ wow. on the cross. <laughs> no. Cairo. Cairo uh, in the sky. Tony Kynaston. Hey, big TK having dinner with TK this afternoon and his family got to get out of here. Moving back from Toronto, but I'm going to go. Tony's going to be with us in uh, Raleigh, and and his beautiful daughter Alex, and then I'm going with them to New York for a couple of days, and then I'm going to Toronto to hang out with them and nice. David Markham. So uh, it's going to be great. Michael Svensson, it'll be two years. You realise when we're in um, Raleigh, yeah, it'll be the two year anniversary of when we're in Vegas. Damn, it doesn't seem like it. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. Which is where we had the idea for the Cold War series. Exactly. And, Walking uh, down the street. Yeah. Anyway, Michael Svensson, Prem Sharma, Peter Spencer, Jeffrey Barker, Richard Little, uh, Marcel Jean Crisman, Ulrich Hoxer, Harm Pomp, Benjamin Fanjoy, Kenny Graham, and that is, uh, that is it. Kenny Graham, I have to say was our first subscriber to the new series. Nice. Love you. So, thank you for the support, those uh, people. We appreciate it. And um, we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks um, at some point with another episode in the Renaissance Times where we'll pick up the story of Constantine leading into the area of the Edict of Toleration and the Christians start to get a foothold, and uh, yeah, see where we'll see where this fucking thing goes from here. People have been asking me how long, what, 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 what date are you going to go up to? Don't know, no idea. Fuck off. Now, maybe the could be sixteen hundred, could be seventeen hundred, yeah. could be eighteen hundred, because you know I kind of think that once you do the the Renaissance, it kind of leads into the, it bleeds into the Enlightenment. Right. 
which kind of bleeds into the American Revolution, <laughs> I think maybe we go all the way up to the American Revolution here because they're all sort of connected, you know, as stepping stones, yeah. Jerry. Steps, Jerry, yeah. steps. <laughs> anyway, we're out.